praise God for his continued work to save. Well, I'm thankful to be here. Uh, many of you know me, and you know I'm not Pastor Stephen. Uh, my name is Josh. If you're visiting with the church, I am the pastor to children and students. And so it is my privilege to bring God's word as Stephen is in Ghana even now. So we will be looking at God's word from Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 802. So 802 in the Pew Bible, Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. It is with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, work of God that you have done in Casey's life. It is, it is not a small thing. It is only something that you can do to bring about life in those who are dead. So we thank you. We thank you that we get to rejoice with him. We also ask that now you would be with us as we consider your word, that you would shape us and mold us, that we would come to it and not just say, check, I tithe or I give my offerings, but that uh, we would assess our hearts and why we give and the purpose. We thank you for your word. Would you use it in a mighty way through us today? It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, there are uh, certain things that you don't talk about. So at the workplace, um, kind of the taboo subjects are religion and politics. Um, sometimes in church, there might even be uh, things that are difficult to talk about as well. And one of those is money, giving, offering. Um, and so if you are new today, we want you to know this is not something that we uh, do periodically, we approach it when God's word approaches it. And so I've been preaching this year through the book of Malachi, and God's word brings to us the topic, uh, the subject of giving of our tithes and offerings. And so it is uh, with that reason that we are here. And I say all that not because I'm trying to, to um, make an excuse for it, but I think it's helpful for us to remember that uh, God's word is something that we sit under and that it evaluates us. And I don't bring this to you either because uh, we're in a shortage in our budget. Praise be to God that you are generous, that you do give, and our givings are above our uh, projected budget. And so that's also in some way a relief to me that this doesn't come as uh, something where I'm pointing a finger at you and at myself. Um, but I do think there is room to receive it. Just because we may be over and giving over our budget doesn't mean that we can ignore this and skip over this passage. Because there's more to God's call in this passage than to just merely write a check and give it in the offering plate. And so as we approach his word, I want us to see four things today. One, God's plea. Two, God's accusation. Three, God's challenge. And then the fourth thing we'll look at is God's blessing. So with that in mind, let us read his word, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you may say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the heavens, open up the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall, fail, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So we see here, just in these short, uh, in these six verses, four different times, the phrase, says the Lord of hosts. And I think the purpose there is that it highlights for us God's authority and his power and his sovereign control over all things, which should make us come to this passage with a sense of reverence, a sense of receiving what he has, and even a rebuke and perhaps repentance needed on our part. And previously in the book of Malachi, we see God constantly rebuking the people. First, from a, uh, because of an active disobedience. We saw earlier uh, that they're bringing impure offerings. The priests are teaching with, with partiality. And then also the people divorce their wives for no reason, and they marry unbelievers. But then the, the rebuke kind of shifts here. We see this transition from God rebuking the people from active disobedience to now he's rebuking them for a passiveness. And that is, he says to them, you've robbed me. And they don't even realize it. They, they ask the question, how have we robbed you? And then God tells them, you've robbed me in your tithes and your contributions. You've failed to bring me tithes. And we also see that this, in verse 9, is not just for a select few people, but it's for the whole nation. So the scope is for all of them. And it's because they failed to submit God. It's because they failed to submit to God that they fail to bring their offerings to him. So this failure to bring this full tithe is, is not the actual issue, God says. That's just a symptom of the true issue, and that is that it's a heart issue. Look again with me at Malachi 3.7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So we see in this verse, we see God's plea. He says, you've turned away from me, right? But it's nothing new, actually. It even says, from the days of your fathers, which is most likely a reference to their fathers who were released or taken out of Egypt in the Exodus. So their rebellion is not new. Their rebellion is something that has continued. And if you think about the history of Israel, over and over and over, God delivers them. 
And then they start to sin and stray away from him. And he rebukes them and sends judgment their way. And then he takes them, he releases them from that judgment. And so here in these days, he's saying, this is nothing new for you. You have failed to recognize that you continue to stray from your God. And although they notice the absence of his blessings, they fail to recognize the absence of their own God. Perhaps you, you may have seen this in marriages where the husband gets so caught up with self and his work and pursuing the things that he wants, he fails to notice his deteriorating marriage, that his wife is distant from him. It's very similar with Judah in that they think they're his children and that he is their God, but they have strayed from him and he's no longer close to them. And so that's why in this verse, God says, return to me, repent of your sin. And you can almost hear his voice, right? Like the longing of a father, turn back to me. I want you. Come back, give me your heart, give me your love and obedience. I want to be your God, right? He wants to be their God, and you could even hear him say, I want you to be my people. We see something very similar, I think, in the New Testament from Luke 15, the prodigal son. You're probably familiar with it even, right? This young man, the son, essentially says to his father, I want nothing to do with you. You're dead to me. Just give me my inheritance so I can go. And then he, he realizes what he's done after he squandered all of his inheritance and has nothing left. But he humbles himself. He comes back to his father. And on the way, he's thinking, I just want to be my father's hired servant. And before he even gets to his home, do you know what it says? Luke 15, 20. And the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He didn't just stand there and wait. It says, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father said, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is where Judah finds themselves. They have a God who says, I want your heart. Give me yourself. Just repent and turn back to me. He's calling them. He's, he's even pleading with them, just saying, give me your heart but they're robbing him, right? We see that in verse nine. They're not bringing offerings to him. And so somehow in their minds, they've, they've divorced the idea that God can be their God and can control all of their heart and all of who they are, yet somehow he doesn't have control over all of that that they possess. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Right? The concern is the heart. The symptom, in this case, is just the money. 
The money reveals where the treasure is. So if you ask me, well, how do I know what my treasure is, where my heart is? I would say, show me your bank statement. Show me your budget. What is it that you spend your money on? Because where your money goes, isn't it true? That's what your heart loves. You don't typically spend money on the things you hate. Right? Your kids. You spend money on your kids because you love them. You spend money on the things that your heart loves. So I think the question for us today is where is your heart? Can you look at your spending, where your money goes? Are you withholding? Are you even robbing God? But you could even think, well, just think about Judah at this time, right? They have, in the recent years, they've been brought from exile in Babylon back to their, their country, back to Jerusalem, and they've not really been there long enough to really establish the economy and be flourishing again. And yet God's still saying, I want you to tithe. I want you to give. Right? From human circumstances, it'd be easy to say, well, their economy's weak. And, and so maybe, maybe God would understand. And God says, no, not, not exactly. Your heart is far from me. You have strayed from me, and let me show you how. We see God's accusation. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Right, so we see God's accusation here is, is your hearts have strayed from me and the scope of it. It's not just a few select people, but he says the whole nation of you. And so this question of how will a man rob God, that's God's answer to them. How shall we return? So their question to God was, right, how shall we return to you? And God replies with something maybe slightly confusing, right? Will a man rob God? And, and this verb rob here, it's, it's a very strong word. It's one that, that, that means like to mug or to forcibly take something from someone. So imagine, right, a human trying to mug the eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God. It's just, it's absurd, Right? And so we want to answer the question like, well, of course that's silly. But then God quickly follows that up with, yet you are robbing me. So they're surprised and shocked, and they answer back, well, how have we robbed you? What's that look like, God? And he says, well, you're supposed to bring your tithes and your offerings, these Offerings, these tithes, are supposed to be coming from your crops and your herd. And if we were to add up total all the, the tithes that were expected of the people during this time, it would be at least 22% per year of their increase. So as God flourishes them and their crops, 
they're to give 10% of that. As God flourishes their herds, they're supposed to give 10% of that. And then every three years, they're supposed to give offering or tithes as well of 10%. And so God says, you're cursed because you're not bringing the full tithe. And that might sound harsh, right? Knowing their circumstances. But if we step back for just a second and we think about reality, Leviticus 25, 23 reminds us of that reality. And there God says, I own all the land. Even as John prayed earlier, God's the creator of all things. He knows or he owns all things. So when God says, I will let you live in this land and you can till the ground and you can work it and keep it. Even though I'm letting you, it's still mine. Who is it that brings the harvest? God does. And so when they fail to give their tithes, God's saying, you have robbed me. It's mine. It's due me. And so they're robbing God as evidence of this broken relationship, right? You can't separate faith and money, even though we might try. They're robbing God. And, and would any of us rob a family member? You wouldn't, love, you wouldn't rob the person that you love. And we even see examples of how faith and money can't be divorced in the New Testament, right? The rich young ruler. He comes eagerly coming to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And at the end of that time, Jesus says to him, you've done well. You just lack one thing. What is it? Jesus looks into his heart. He looks at him and he says, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, Come and follow me. Jesus didn't say, go sell all you have and give it to me. His concern is not to have all your possessions. Or really to get all his possessions back from you. His goal is, I want your heart. Give me your heart. And then even in Zacchaeus, we uh, saw just a couple of weeks ago as well, that Zacchaeus, this wealthy tax collector comes to faith in Christ, and what's the first thing that happens? He says, I'm going to go sell half of what I have, give it to the poor, and then anyone I've defrauded, I'm going to give them fourfold back what I've taken from them. God is at, he's at the, he wants to, to have their hearts. So we can't separate faith and money. And that's what God's getting at when he makes this accusation is that money reveals your heart. So my question to you now is, could God accuse you? Could God say to you, you're robbing me? If he were to look at your heart, would he ask you the question, why will a man rob God? Does your giving reflect a heart that loves God, that is indebted to God? Therefore, you are eager to give. God wants his people to return. 
And that's why he even points out their lack of faith as an evidence of their wayward hearts. Or their money, sorry, their lack of giving as evidence of their wayward hearts. And so then we see in verse 10, we see God's challenge. Read with me Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. So God essentially gives him a challenge, right? Test me. I want to prove myself to you. But it also requires faith on their part. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to just so overwhelm you with so much stuff, then you give to me. He says, put me to the test. Give me what is due me. And see if I will not bless you. Right? So God challenges them. He says, I am the Lord God Almighty, right? Everything is under my control, under my care. So will I not reward your obedience? That's in his challenge. Like, test me. It might even be a command, right? Test me and see what I'm going to do. So God does not ask them, will you give if I bless you? but he's testing their faith. And they might even think, well, how can we give when we have so little? Don't, don't you know me, God? Don't you see the little bit that I have and yet you're asking me to give you something? You're asking me to give of you? This is, this is what I'm supposed to be holding on to, right? This is how I'm feeding my family. Yet God says, test me. See if I will not provide for you. And so there may be some of you here today. Perhaps you don't give generously. Perhaps you even justify a lack of giving with, well, I lost my job two years ago. I'm not promised tomorrow with my job. Or I'm... I'm struggling right now. How, how can I provide for my family if I give this to you, God? And if, if we were to probe that just a little bit, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do that with you now and just expose the heart issue right there, right? When we fail to, 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 to give, it's essentially saying, God, I'm just gonna keep this. I'm gonna be the one responsible for providing for me. When God's saying, don't you see? Your ultimate provision is based upon me. So when we fail to give, it's like we're saying, little insignificant me, little, with the little insignificant wisdom that I have, I'm gonna use all that to plan my life, to control my life that I can provide for myself. When God's just sitting back saying, test me. Prove me. I'll show you. I want to give to you. I want to bless you. I don't want you to be a sponge, but I want you to be a funnel through which I can bless and bless others. He wants their hearts. 
He wants to challenge them. He, he wants to ask them, who will you trust? Will you, will you trust in yourself? Will your faith be in your ability to provide? Or will it be in God himself? And so God's challenge there is a challenge for them to trust him. And he says, if you would do this, I'll bless you. Look at verse, the end of verse 10. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the doors of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not, fare, shall not fail to bear fruit says the Lord of hosts, then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So even in God's rebuke and his call for them to repent and turn to him, he says, if you would just do this, I will bless you. The first blessing he promises them, he says that they will have an abundance beyond their need, right? He says, put me to the test, by giving your full tithe, don't skimp, bring it all. Put me to the test and see if I will not bless you beyond what you need. The NIV translates this uh, part of the verse, pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. So just, you get this picture of, of God says, you, you just give me what I'm owed what's due me that reflects a heart that trusts in me and see if I'm not going to overflow your storehouse. See if I'm not gonna bless you beyond what you need. So you get this picture, right? When it says the windows of heaven will be opened up, just of, of rain of God's provision coming down. So when God provides for you, it's clear, it's from him. It's his blessing that only he gets credit for. And then we see the second blessing. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. So the first blessing, right? It's very clear when God blesses, it's all attributed to him and he's the one that will bless. But then the second one, God says, how am I going to do it? I'll protect your crop. I'll keep the locust from eating it. And your vine shall bear much fruit. I think that's interesting. The same way that God's asking them to give in their tithes, that is, bring 10% of your crop, your harvest, he says, I'm going to turn around and bless you in that same way. When you exercise faith in that area, he's going to increase that blessing. He's going to, to bless you in the same way that he exercises faith. So here, just the question comes to mind for me. Do you face life with a trust in God's provision? whether from an earthly standard you have much or from an earthly standard you have little. I don't think it matters because you can have a lot 
and be consumed with, with money and possessions because you feel like you don't have enough or there's always something else that you want. But you can also have, from an earthly standard, very little and also be consumed with, I don't have enough. So both of these can come to the table and say, well, how can I give? Because I've got some, there's something else I need or that we think we need. So do we come to life trusting God's provision? And I don't want this to sound like health and wealth, right? You give and then God will multiply 10 or 20 or 100 fold. That's not what God's saying here. He's speaking to a people in a specific time and he's saying, you look at circumstances in your life and you try to justify, well, I can't give to you because I have nothing. And he says, will you trust me? Will you trust the promises that I've given you by obeying the commands that I've given to you? And so for us, God does not say, if you give $10 in the offering plate, I'm going to give you 100 back. That's not his promise of blessing. God has blessed his people. He's blessed them chiefly with Christ. And so if you're a Christian here today and, and you even look at us when the offering plates came around earlier and, and you think, man, this church is just out for money. Or see, I told you, God's just out to get from me. I think we've missed the point. Because you're seeing God as a strict judge or maybe this miserly king that is always wanting, wanting, wanting from people. When God is actually more generous than any of us could ever imagine. He sent Christ his son, right? Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 8 and 9, or 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God says, I am more generous than you could ever imagine. I will bless you in ways that you could not even think of in Christ. He who has more riches than any of us could ever imagine emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, dying on the cross, being raised to new life. He emptied himself, he gave up his riches. He bore the wrath of the Father because of your sin so that you might become rich, that you might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So in his poverty, you become rich if you would have faith in his good work for you on the cross. So I hope that even sheds light on this, that, that God is not after your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. So will you, if you're without Christ today, will you bow a knee to King Jesus? Will you trust and follow him in every area of your life? But then this passage also highlights a third blessing. 
Or maybe you could even say this is a result of the others. It says, all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Right? So in some way, this is a result of their obedience and God's blessing. Right? That others will look upon them and say, you are blessed. But also, this is a blessing to them because it says that they will, their land will be a delight. When God's people see that his possessions, his world is not theirs and their, their grip loosens on possessions, that's for our good. It's to our good that we can be this, in this land of delight and see that it's not about money. It's about knowing him. And when we delight in Christ, when he's the delight of our land, of us, others will look and say they're blessed. They're blessed by God. So imagine his people delighting in giving. Does that, does that describe us today? Right? God is is commanding these people or or telling them, challenging them, saying, you failed to to bring me the full tithe and contribution. But we also know this is under the law, under the Mosaic law, we're in a new covenant. So what does that look like for us and who are living in the time of the New Testament? Are we still required, expected to tithe, to give? I want to answer that with a no and a yes. Might be confusing. Is there an explicit command in the New Testament that you must tithe? I don't think there is. But I think there are principles that carry over, perhaps an expectation that carries over from the Old Testament. If we even think about Abraham, who was before the Mosaic law was given, God blesses him, and he gives a tenth of his increase. So I just want to do a short survey of just two passages that help us understand what God wants from us when we give. And perhaps that will even highlight our first point that God is desiring their hearts. So the first one I want to read to you is 1 Corinthians 16, 2. It says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul's writing to the, to the church in Corinth and saying, the first day of every week, I want you to plan to take up an offering, right? It's a consistent thing. It's, it's not just, oh, well, the end of the month came and I've got $20 left. Let's give that. The expectation is, no, I want you consistently to plan to give. Make provision to give. Set aside money in your budget to give. Perhaps the first thing that you do when you get direct deposit, you write a check. You say, I'm setting this aside for God. This belongs to him. I want it to, to be given back to him. And then if you would do me a favor, flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
2 Corinthians 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read these, and then I would just like to make uh, six quick points. They will be really quick. Beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So just six, six more points, right? The first one for New Testament giving, I think it should be planned and consistent. And then from this passage, the first thing to see is that giving for us should be grace giving. It should be a response to God's grace, right? It said, the grace of God that has been given out of God's, out of the overflow, out of God's rich, abundant blessing to us, we then respond in giving back to him. Two, second, it should be joyful, right? Verse two, their abundance of joy. So you, you get to give, right? It's not, uh, it's not forced or it shouldn't be forced. It should be something that is a response out of joy to who God is. The third thing, we should give even in difficult circumstances. There's, I like math, and so I kind of see verse 2 in some ways as a math equation. So look at it with me. For in a severe test of affliction, all right, affliction plus their abundance of joy plus their extreme poverty equals it's overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Right? A severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, yet they were still joyful. So we can even give in difficult circumstances. And then the fourth thing is that it, it should be an overflow of generosity. Right? Their affliction, joy, and poverty overflowed in a wealth. Not just a little bit of generosity, but a wealth, an abundance of generosity. The fifth thing from, from this sh short passage, they were eager, right? Verse four, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. They're begging. They've had a severe test of affliction. They've got extreme poverty, Yet they're eager, so much so that they're, they're begging, right? So if we had not passed the offering plates this morning and the end of the service comes, you're dismissed, would anybody stand up? No, hold up, Josh, we're not done. You gotta pass those offering plates. W would that happen? Probably not. Are we that eager that even in severe affliction, in extreme poverty, they were eager. And you even see what the purpose was for, that it's the re relief of the saints. 
And that might even cause a question. Hopefully it does. For me, it does. It's like, well, they just had the affliction. They just have the extreme poverty, but yet they're giving to relieve others. Are you serious? It's, it's astonishing. And so I think this passage highlights together, it highlights something. When you give, it, it weds your heart to God. Right, they gave of themselves, verse six, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so when we give, when we give consistently or we plan to give and when we give out of the grace that's been shown to us through Christ and when we give joyfully and even in difficult circumstances that is overflowing in generosity and eagerness, that weds our heart to our God. So it's a good thing that we have opportunity to give. It's, it's the way of, of God saying, if you'll give to me, it will loosen your grip on money and possessions so that money doesn't grip you, but your heart is wed to me, your king. So I hope that you don't go away from today thinking, I need to give, and that's the end of it. Because there's a danger in that. You can't just check the box and say, I gave. The danger of going away from hearing and thinking first, I need to do. The danger in that is first that you, you must first belong you must belong to God. You must seek him, return to him in repentance, and then do. Because he wants your heart. He wants to be your God and you be his people. And then out of response to who he is and his generosity, then let us give. So my question is, will you trust him? Will you treasure him above all? Where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. I ask that you would use your word to do a good work in us. That you would first help our hearts to be wed to you, that we would not have to hear the rebuke Will you, man, oh, will you, oh man, rob God? Would you give us hearts that are eager to give, that give out of response to your generosity to us, that are joyful in our giving? Give us hearts that long for you. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.